0: This week's TripCast we'll talk about how Texans are polling on the presidential and U.S. Senate field, the inside look at Texas Democrats' 2020 strategy, and the legislature's impending redistricting process. But before we do, I want to thank our Tribcast sponsors. The Smart City Safety Technology Summit, which connects government agencies, emergency responders and tech leaders to showcase public safety innovations in cloud and edge computing, VR, AI, robotics, drones and 5G. Register at textc.org slash 2019 summit.
1: Texas Monthly, the national magazine of Texas, presents the national podcast of Texas. Find conversations with Texas newsmakers and legends like Willie Nelson, Nolan Ryan, Brooklyn Decker, and Admiral Bill McRaven every Monday at TexasMonthly.com or wherever you find your podcasts.
0: This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, September 11th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor and monster truck aficionado, Ross Ramsey. Howdy. (laughs) Howdy. (laughs) Uh, Demographics reporter, Alexa Uda. Hello. Hello. And political reporter, Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, As always, we'll be taking your questions live on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. All right, Ross, you're sitting here with your laptop open, which can only mean one thing. Tractor polls. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, that is that we have a new poll out. Uh, we released some polling today on the eve of Thursday's presidential debate in Houston, uh, specifically on the presidential uh, and U.S. Senate field. So let's start with presidential. What did we learn?
2: Uh, Joe Biden is leading the pack still. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has slipped ahead of Beto O'Rourke in our polling. And uh, the June poll that we did, O'Rourke was ahead of um, Warren, his numbers haven't changed much, but she's coming up. So it kind of mirrors what's happening nationally. Bernie Sanders in fourth. And those are in Texas the top four. If you look at national polls, I think Patrick probably has a better beat on this than I do, but if you look at national polls, the top four would be Biden, Warren, Sanders, and Harris. So Beto's doing pretty well in Texas, which is to be expected from a guy who spent $80 million last year making his name known to everybody.
0: Except pretty well in Texas, except that he's still polling third. I mean, is, I don't know. I looked at that numbers and thought, I was surprised that he was trailing those two in Texas.
2: Yeah, he was, you know, he's been trailing Biden in Texas all along uh, in this race. And, you know, that's led a lot of fuel to the, he should be running for Senate fire. Mm -hmm. Um, But... um, Yeah, it looks like Warren's coming on. Hmm. So uh, the other Texan in the race, uh, Julian Castro, is at 3%. That's where he was last time. The interesting thing in those numbers to me is that he is both better known and better liked than he was earlier. You know, you could make an argument back in June. People don't know who he is yet. People know who he is. Still at 3%. Wow.
0: Wow. Uh, all right. What about the Senate? There were some really interesting, uh, some interesting takeaways from the uh, Democrats in the U.S. Senate race. Too. I
2: almost wrote a headline that was just "Who?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the problem here is that sixty six percent of Texans either don't know who these people are or haven't made up their mind about them. The first question we asked was, "Have you heard of these guys?" And the the winner in that contest was Royce West, the state senator from Dallas, who is known to twenty two percent of Texas Democrats. People who say they're going to vote in the Texas Democratic right. primary—that's uh, the upper end, right? So, 78% of them have no idea who he is. Wow. Uh, so, the next question we asked was, "Who are you going to vote for?" Uh, M.J. Hager, who was a Senate candidate—I'm sorry, a congressional candidate—in 2018 against John Carter up in Williamson and Bell counties, uh, did pretty well in that race. I think finished within three points. Um, was first among the Democratic Senate candidates, see, I'm burying my lead, Um, 11%. Wow. Uh, Most of them haven't decided. 53% said, I haven't even thought about that yet. Another 13% said, I haven't made up my mind. So that's a wide open race. It's going to be open to uh, the candidates defining themselves, somebody trying to jump out. One of the characteristics of this race that we've talked about is with the exception of Chris Bell, nobody's run statewide, and Bell hasn't run statewide in years. So they all start relatively unknown and in a position where this one's strong in Houston, that one's strong in Dallas, you know, and so on. Mm -hmm.
0: So when you look at these numbers, I mean, the first thing that occurred to me, and I'm not sure if this is the right assessment, but the first thing that occurred to me was I felt like there was an enthusiasm gap You know, if people don't know who the candidates are, if they're, you know, very divided on who they support, but even that support is in the low teens in some cases, is that, is it too early for an assessment like that or what, did you have a gut check? In the Senate race? In in both of the
2: races. Well, I think, I think people are tuned into the presidential race and that's what they're paying attention to. Mm -hmm. And the problem for, you know, in any year in Texas in a statewide race, when there's a presidential race going on, the problem is just getting enough oxygen to have anybody pay attention to you. So the the problem for the Senate candidates is going to be kind of breaking through the political news and the political noise on one hand and breaking through the donors on the other hand. <clears throat> if you're in a race like this and you can put together, you know, some amount of money, I don't know what the magic number is, 2 to 5 million dollars, you can get well known enough to get out of the pack and move on to the next round in November. And that's that's their first problem. In the presidential race, you know, you have a bunch of candidates clamoring to get on stage the next debate is tomorrow night in houston um 10 on stage
0: you'll be there patrick right
1: i will yeah
2: Mm -hmm. Um, lucky guy you know 10 on stage (laughs) 10 not on stage and so it's really hard to break through you know people are you know the classic formulation in politics is people begin to tune in after labor day Mm -hmm. so the kids are in school we're tuning back in um a lot of these are familiar faces and the familiar faces have risen to the top of the pack
0: Was any of this a big surprise for you? Did you see anything in the numbers that you were surprised to see?
2: I was um, thinking that Castro might make some gains, and I was thinking that um, I thought um, O'Rourke would hold. And, you know, his numbers have been fairly constant, but, you know, he's moving, you know, Everybody's moving past him, some yeah. of the top And he,
1: he's done a lot this week already uh, with all eyes on Texas to try to press his um, home state strength or to at least show off his support here. Uh, on uh, Yesterday, on Tuesday, announced a, a statewide leadership team, so basically naming his first hires in Texas dedicated to helping win the Texas primary. And then just this morning, uh, Wednesday morning, unveiled a te- big Texas endorsement list that had over 100 names on it. Mm. Uh, the Texas primary, I mean, his campaign... Uh, loves to emphasize his ability to potentially carry Texas in the general election, but obviously you've got to be the nominee first. Right. And so, Small thing. Um, you know, I would argue right now, you know, more of the focus is probably on making sure that he, uh, you know, has a shot at winning the Texas primary. Cause as, as Ross pointed out, There's just no other state on that early state calendar where he's able to register this much support. I mean, in fact, he's one and two and three percent in a lot of other states.
2: If you were a fight promoter, uh, you'd probably look at these numbers in the presidential race with the Texans and in the Senate race with the unknown Texans, and you know wonder what might happen in a Senate race if a Castro or an O'Rourke moved over uh, from the presidential race where they're not doing so hot. To the U.S. Senate race where nobody's doing so hot and where those two are both really well-known names. That's going to be one of the lingering questions probably after the election in 2020.
0: And which of them ha- have either of them said, point, oh, point blank, I will not do that?
2: O'Rourke is absolutely not. He's yeah, he said, said it a bunch he's of absolutely
1: ruled it out. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure Castro may, has doesn't get asked about it as much, but has probably said something
2: similar. His, um, his brother looked, Joaquin Castro, the congressman from San Antonio, looked at it really seriously decided not to make that race. Yeah. I wonder if he's
0: rethinking that given the, that the highest polling level, what is Royce West at 18% or something? Well, 22%, 22% of the people know who he is who and, he then, is, and right.
2: then Hager only has 11%. So, you yeah. know, there's, there's 89% of those voters out right. there kind of floating around.
1: Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'll just note too, in the presidential race, cause I'm, I'm working on a story right now that'll come out later, just about the state of the the presidential primary in Texas. But a lot of these non-Texan candidates um, have already visited Texas and already visited multiple times. Uh, I think we tallied it up. There have been uh, over at least 17 non-Texan presidential candidates who visited Texas including already Including Elizabeth this Warren cycle. last
0: Yeah, yeah including last Elizabeth night. Warren
1: last night. And that includes some folks who have who've, who've dropped out. Um, and I think that there are five non-Texan presidential candidates who have already had four trips to Texas mm-hmm. this cycle, including their travel here this week. Um, so these folks are clearly not... Um, you know, ceding Texas to O'Rourke or Castro just because they're from
2: here and just because work seems to have... That's mostly money and not votes, right?
1: You know, that that's interesting. I mean, uh, these trips that these candidates are making, not all are created equal. Some of them are just to fly in for a day to appear at a multi-candidate forum in Houston or something like that, as they've done so far. Uh, some of them are for, for fundraising, but some of these candidates have also, to their credit, actually taken the time to build trips Swings through Texas that are politically meaningful, whether it's uh, doing an event for a local party, for the state party or or having their own campaign event that they actually have to put their resources into hosting right. and getting people out for, like Elizabeth Warren did last night in Austin. yeah
3: if for argument is, look how how well I did last time, let's build on that. Do we have any any sense for in the numbers where some of those new voters and maybe Republican voters that pushed him so close? to the finish line go in a primary?
2: I don't know where they go in a primary. I mean, the, you know, the, the short answer to that is we don't have anything scientific, right? We, um, but, you know, the part of the race, part of the dynamic in that Senate race was Ted Cruz, who's not here this time. And the, the Ted Cruz effect, to some extent, you know, at least in our early polling when Beto O'Rourke was still mostly unknown outside of El Paso, um, He was doing pretty well against Ted Cruz because Ted Cruz's negatives are so high. John Cornyn doesn't have the same kind of, it's not exactly the same kind of dynamic. And we didn't, in this poll, uh, do a head-to-head with the Republican. We just polled Democratic voters this time. Mm
0: Patrick, this week uh, you got an early look at the Texas Democrats' uh, plan, their uh, potential plan to flip the state. Uh, The timing obviously was perfect ahead of the debate. The plan seems to sort of hinge on this premise that there are voters who aren't registered yet who would likely vote Democratic and finding ways to get them out. Uh, Talk a little bit about what the sort of specifics were, the actionable takeaways from their plan.
1: Yeah, so this this plan was notable for a number of reasons. One of the big, uh, you know, kind of takeaway numbers from it is 2.6 million, and that's the number of uh, unregistered voters in Texas that they've identified who would likely be Democrats if they're registered. And so the party wants to register as many of those people as possible. Um, That's obviously a very ambitious undertaking, especially in the course of of one election cycle. Uh, But they're putting kind of a a benchmark out there, and they're also talking about – you know, they're also identifying hundreds of thousands of potential new Democratic voters um, in the suburbs, in, in rural areas, in communities of color. Um, that they need to increase turnout in those groups to, to generate those new Democratic votes. Um, they want to build a massive statewide coordinated campaign uh, to accomplish this, this cycle, which is something that the Texas Democratic Party in recent election cycles, um, you know, hasn't really had. Uh, per se, um, at least still. not in the yeah. way that you see it in other states that have, you know, are, are typically kind of battleground states in in November, um, and so they want to build that capacity out. And as part of that, they want to they're they're saying that they they plan to have over a thousand field organizers on the ground uh, by the end of the election cycle that would be paid through this statewide coordinated campaign. Again, this is all very ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, takes money, obviously you have to have the fundraising to support something like this. Um, But it was notable just to hear them, you know, put some specific number figures on the growth opportunities for voter registration and and, and additional turnout in Texas. Um, And as you said, it came at the beginning of a week, obviously, when all eyes are on Texas. And I think that folks are, are looking for, uh, you know, um, some, some precise uh, planning on what it, what the path forward is for uh, Democrats in Texas Mm -hmm. this cycle.
0: Uh, how did Republicans sp- respond to this plan?
1: They, you know, they responded uh, not necessarily by uh, y- uh, you know criticizing the substance of the plan, but saying, "Hey, we're, we're ready too." Mm-hmm. Uh, and to an extent, yes, they are, they also are ready. That's the state party has undertaken. A number. The state Republican Party has undertaken um, a couple new initiatives this cycle. One of them is uh, this. It's called the Volunteer Engagement Project, and it basically is an effort to kind of uh, revitalize what I would call you know core functions of the party: voter registration, vo- organizing volunteers, getting out the vote. Um, and then you also have some some outside groups that are that are going to be players this cycle in Texas in this fight. You have this new super PAC, Engage Texas, which is trying to uh, register hundreds of thousands of new Republican voters in texas it's already raised almost ten million dollars to try to get that uh, done this cycle um, and so yeah, I mean it 's going to be a real fight, and I think that you have both sides mobilizing in really meaningful and serious ways this cycle uh, to to duke it out. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, one piece of this plan that I saw was an emphasis on protecting voting rights. Uh, how are they uh, suggesting that they're going to do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the one of one of the kind of newsier uh, bullet points under that is that they're going to be debuting a uh, voter protection hotline on January 1st, 2020. That'll be available year-round for people who are having voting problems or believe that their voting rights are being infringed or blocked. They can call, and they're going to be working with, uh, you know, you know, uh, cast of voting rights lawyers and advocates uh, to take care of any of these issues that may come up. Um, And they're obviously going to be, you know, remaining vigilant, I think, about laws in Texas that have, you know, have already been passed that can make it harder to vote. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. The thing I find interesting about these sort of emerging plans is that a big portion in terms of sort of the name of the game seems to be voter registration. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of can't help but think how much both of these folks, including the Republicans, are wishing we had Online voter registration, because think of the money that could be saved. Instead of having to pay canvassers and find people to go out and register people to vote, you could just. Yeah, point it's them uh, to for a both website. sides. It's it's yeah. a
1: very yeah. arduous process to register voters in Texas. Well, and then to
2: get them to show up once they've registered. You know, the longstanding, right. you know, the foundational thing, one of the foundational things in Texas is if turnout's lower, it's Republican. If it's higher, it's Democratic. And <clears throat> after 2018, when we had a really big turnout, 8.3 million people in a non presidential year, the Democrats became very, very hopeful, as you hear if you go down the street. The Republicans got a little bit nervous, so they start engaged engage Texas, and the Republicans are now in a position where they want more voters. Yeah, they you don't want are more saying, voters yeah. until you run out of voters, and they run out, they're running out of voters, and they need to get some more people in there. And so they're picking up some, uh, some of the things Democrats have been trying to do several cycles right it's
0: fascinating that a more competitive state may actually be what leads to online voter registration (laughs) in Texas. (laughs) yeah I mean
3: I think at this point it's surprising how long it took Republicans to realize this but in places like Harris County I mean their base is literally dying off Mm -hmm. and they have to register new voters and if online registration would be in place you'd have sort of an easier in to getting them to actually register right
0: all right, well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more Tribcast sponsors the Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Community Colleges provide pathways for all Texans to advance to the next level. We are accessible, affordable, and relevant. Visit TACC.org. And DHR Health, which has revolutionized the healthcare landscape of the Rio Grande Valley and continues to raise the standard of healthcare for the benefit of our South Texas community. To learn more, visit www.dhrhealth.com. We're also coming right up on the Texas Tribune Festival, and TribFest has, as of today, uh, announced the lineup for Open Congress, which is our free news and community politics street fair that takes place during the festival Saturday, September 28th. It's on Congress Avenue between 7th and 11th Streets. Check out the lineup and RSVP to join us at festival.texastribune.org. Okay, Alexa, a couple minutes ago, we were just talking about voting rights and voting integrity. Um, The Texas legislature is about to embark on that extraordinary, uh, often problematic map drawing process called redistricting. Uh, Can you please lay the foundation for us first and tell us, uh, explain what redistricting is and what we ought to know about it, why it matters? Yeah, I mean, so basically everything
3: we're talking to about is sort of, you know, all the roads that lead to redistricting. When lawmakers have to redraw the political boundaries that make up our congressional seats and legislative seats, uh, as our state continues to grow, we are. I think at this point we're. I think we're about two point three million since 2010. That's only going to continue to go up in the next couple of years. And And this happens
0: once a decade.
3: uh, it's supposed to only happen once right. a decade. It hasn't always <laughs> three, been the case. Five minutes, and yeah. if you're in Texas, the litigation makes it feel like it's happening every year. Uh, but basically, it's you know it's going to be this incredibly contentious component of the 2021 legislative session in which people have to figure out what their districts are going to look like. There are parts of the state that are losing population. Those are mostly Republican areas of the state. You might end up having people paired with each other. There there will be fights about, are we going to make new districts where people of color are in a majority and can have the opportunity to vote for who they want? Um, but all of this is coming at a time when voters of color have fewer protections uh, from The lawmakers who have over, you know, repeatedly discriminated against them in drawing up these maps. And so I think that's sort of the the start of this fight is that's what's looming over this fight even now, as we're sort of very, very early in the process.
0: And so explain that this is the first map drawing process in half a century where the process is basically not under federal oversight to avoid, you know, racism and to avoid this kind of sort of gerrymandering. Uh, to explain what that federal oversight was and what it did, what it provided.
3: So for decades before Texas could enact any new maps or even election laws, they ha- they basically had to ask the federal government or a federal court for permission to do it. And it was suppo- it was sort of the stopgap to keep these laws from going into effect. It would give the courts or the federal government time to review them and make sure they didn't discriminate against voters of color. And if they were fine, then you were good to go. Usually though they weren't fine and we would have sort of these prolonged uh, legal fights that would come from it. That is all gone now. Any fighting that's going to come uh, that's going to come about from the maps and whether they discriminate will have to be after the fact.
0: And after they already go into effect.
3: After they've gone into effect. And if this last decade is sort of any indicator, mm-hmm. that's going to be an extremely slow process.
0: So, obviously, we're about to see, you know, there's an election in 2020 that will precede this. Um, But assuming Democrats make any more gains, I mean, 2021 is really interesting and critical, given Texas is sort of dwindling Republican majority in the legislature. How hard are they fighting? You know, we talked just a minute ago about, like, you know, Republicans being game for, uh, you know, needing more to register more voters. How much of the sort of inverse of this is trying to draw the maps in ways that protect them as best they can?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think in, in 2011, the not the last time they did this, but the last time they initially embarked to do this after a, a census, they were sort of working to expand the gains that they had made in the 2020 election, which had been in the 2010 election, which had been a great Tea Party wave election for them. This time, they're trying to figure out where they can hold on to power because the numbers just aren't there for them. Uh, you know, obviously, the idea of whether the House will flip is a huge component of this, mostly for the congressional map. Um, on the legislative side, if they can't come up with a map between a Democratic House and a Republican Senate, it goes to the legislative. Redistricting board, which is mostly Republican, so that I think that map is mostly gone at this point.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, and I think you just maybe hinted at it, but what, what is the practical impact of the Texas House flipping on on the redistricting process? Like, yeah. we talk about that obviously in the political stakes, but like, mm-hmm. what what would that mean practically for the, the process?
3: The yeah. biggest thing is what it. Well, there are two big things. One is what it means for the congressional map, which is where the Democrats could basically either force the Republicans into a compromise map to avoid. The redrawing going to a federal court instead, or force a stalemate that puts the redrawing in a federal court purposefully. I don't know if that, I don't actually know who that ends up helping given the state of our federal courts at this point, but so far Republicans have not wanted to give up that power to the courts. The other component is that having incumbents in place in as many seats as possible is only helpful to the party that wants to keep control of those seats. The, The idea being that you can redraw the lines to sort of bolster an incumbent's place in a district mm-hmm. um and say well it, you know this is the reason we're doing this map it's not about race it's not about it's about keeping this incumbent there so even if you don't have majorities that sort of pull the actual maps in a different way in terms of the legislative ones mm-hmm. having an incumbent there will help you sort of argue for specific lines and kind of protect you from any sort of Allegations about
2: racism the the Republicans now are where the Democrats were 20 years ago They had a majority in the they still had a majority in the congressional delegation. It was skinny uh, but they had a Republican Senate and a Democratic House until um, after the 2002 elections and they drew maps that were just a straight Gerrymander to try to save their majority the Republicans won control of the legislature in 2003 redid the maps and we've had Republican maps since. Now the Republicans are in a dwindling situation like the Democrats were in at that point. And you, you know, like Alexa says, you're trying to save your incumbents and, and, and hold your majority against a tide.
0: Who does the actual business of drawing the lines on the map? Like, who's out there with the Sharpie <laughs> working on there? <laughs> there is an assembly of lawyers who
3: are going to be very well paid <laughs> over yep. the next couple of years. Uh, you know, the last go around, the House Districting Committee had lawyers who were in charge of this. The caucuses sort of lawyer up and have people working on this behind the scenes. Uh, the speaker's office typically has a, a team of lawyers that report directly to them, Um You know, I think we'll see sort of repetitions of that. I think what will be interesting um, is how much the Democratic caucus does to sort of lawyer up. In the past, it's fallen on sort of the Mexican-American legislative caucus, um, the caucus of black House members. They sort of have done that internally and leaned on their lawyers. Uh, you know, I think it'll be curious to see how much the caucus itself does. There was some questioning yesterday at the House Redistricting Committee uh, from Chris Turner, who was the chair of the caucus. He was sort of asking about legal counsel and they seemed like, you know, sort of really internal and wonky questions, but sort of hinting at the fact that they might be sort of looking to come into this one a little bit more organized maybe than they were last time and come into it organized as a caucus as a, as opposed to, as a political caucus, as opposed to some of these more uh, specific caucuses to Hispanic and black lawmakers.
0: Right. But like, is any
3: of it computer... Operated oh, like I mean, so it's right, this like, it's this program called Red Apple. Um, is what I was wondering, and yeah. it's it's this like storied program in the last litigation because people you know they hate it as much as they love it. Right. Um, and you, I haven't actually used it myself. It's, a, it's like a clunky
2: old video game. I've used like it a Sim, lot. It's, it's
0: like, like SimCity or something. Yeah, right? you, you basically yeah. go yeah. in
3: and you can draw lines precinct by precinct. Right. You know the Texas Legislative Council plays a big role in this and sort of analyzes those maps as they're drawn um but it's basically all done on computers at this point Mm -hmm. and you're basically divvying up people as data points into districts Wow, fascinating
2: yeah ledge council writes the programs and runs all of that stuff and actually ends up at the end when you're in the courts usually ends up getting uh grabbed by the courts to draw the courts lines Mm -hmm. so those are the wonks at the middle
0: well, Alexa, will be staying tuned. Thank you. Uh, Patrick, I just have a quick, quick sort of grab bag of some lingering political things I wanted to ask you about, um, For starting with John Cornyn, who may have a uh, surprising to me primary challenger. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, this would be State Senator uh, Pat Fallon, Republican from Prosper. Um, he announced at a, a Tea Party meeting in North Texas the other night uh, that he was forming an exploratory committee um, basically just announcing that he's considering running against Cornyn seems to be moving on a pretty quick timeline he told me uh Tuesday the morning after the announcement that he would like to make up his mind in the next week or so um you know a bit of a surprise for sure there was definitely some some a little speculation in kind of the you know immediate days and hours leading up to it but certainly a surprise because Cornyn has been able to uh keep uh, keep away any serious primary challengers so far. Late last year, he kind of shored up his right flank. He got the endorsement of Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, of Ted Cruz, who famously declined to endorse him in the last, uh, in the 2014 primary. And then he's been endorsed by uh, the president, Donald Trump, who is overwhelmingly popular with the Republican uh, primary electorate, especially in Texas. And so Cornyn, you know, continues to look very formidable in a, in a primary in Texas. But Clearly, Fallon sees some kind of opening, the The case that he seemed to make, uh, you know, at this Tea Party meeting uh, was that, you know, it was, it was kind of interesting. He definitely made kind of an ideological case, but also made a case that he would be kind of a more viable general election candidate in some ways, um, you know, and that he would have kind of bring more energy to the general election. Um, if you know Pat Fallon, he's a pretty energetic guy. Um, you know, but I, I thought that was just interesting, just because it, it may kind of tell us where we're at in Texas, where even when we're talking about primary, you know, challenges and intra-party fights like this, the, the focus is the talking center. about yeah, not as, as movie, just, to the center, yeah, but yeah, yeah, basically, that there's there they're. they're, they're, they're talking early about viability in the mm-hmm. general election. And so I thought that was interesting that that was part of his pitch too, because in the past in Texas, you know, these primary challenges have, have largely been about mm-hmm. uh, ideology and, and political purity. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't see anybody launching a primary challenge necessarily, uh, you know, saying I'm going to be a better general election candidate, right? <laughs> you know, because right. you just exactly. don't have to worry about the general election in Texas.
0: All right, second item, uh, we know Elizabeth Warren had a rally in Austin on Tuesday night. Uh, she also made headlines this week for wading into a Texas congressional race. You wrote about that, too. What was she up to there? Yeah, this was a
1: pretty big deal, honestly, in, um, in in the context of this congressional race. Uh, so she endorsed Jessica Cisneros, who is uh, the primary challenger to Henry Cuellar, uh, Democrat from Laredo, uh, Cisneros was uh, d- recruited and is being backed by Justice Democrats, the kind of progressive insurgency group that is famous for helping elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York last year. Um, and Warren not only endorsed Cisneros, but um, basically gave her a full-on embrace this week. You know, sent out uh, fundraising emails for her, uh, met with her before her event last night in Austin, and had her introduce uh, warren uh cisneros introduced warren at this event last night in austin they shared the stage together uh just a, a real full-on embrace and, and really notable because even though the the cisneros quay race has kind of been on the national radar due to the involvement of justice democrats you haven't seen a lot of big democratic figures um either in the district or outside the district kind of get involved in that mm-hmm. so far warren is by far the biggest name that has waded into that race so far um you know i, I think it's a pretty bold move honestly right.
0: Last point here, Uh, Beto O'Rourke named his presidential staff for Texas. Uh, What are the biggest recognizable names, if any, on that list?
1: So, the state director, her first name is Delilah. I'm not going to even try to pronounce her last name, but first name is Delilah. Um, She has experience in Texas and presidential campaigns. She most recently served as the field director for Stacey Abrams' uh, campaign last year for Georgia governor. Uh, she's worked for Battleground Texas Equality Texas. She's worked on Hillary Clinton and Martin O'Malley's presidential uh, c- campaigns in uh, the last presidential election cycle. So certainly a seasoned operative, especially when it comes to organizing, is going to be leading that team. There are a few other names on there, people who are uh, alums of O'Rourke's twenty eighteen Senate race and know Texas very well as a result. Um, so I would say it was a you know it was a it was a pretty impressive group of people. Um, but you know more importantly, he, he was the first candidate. Um, you know, to announce any kind of staff in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I assume that, you know, I've heard first that. First presidential
0: candidate, right. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, and obviously we've talked about how important Texas is to him, but still a pretty notable development to be first out the gate with actually saying these are people in Texas that were paying to help me win the Texas primary.
0: Great. All right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Texas Monthly, the Smart City Safety Technology Summit, the Texas Association of Community Colleges and DHR Health, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Alexa, Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. You